If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Dave Ferguson, co-founder and president of Neuro, the company bettering everyday life through robotics. Dave co-founded Neuro in 2016, and the company has since released three generations of electric autonomous vehicles that deliver goods from produce to prescriptions. To date, Neuro has piloted autonomous local delivery in Texas, Arizona, and California, and the company is valued at over $8 billion. Dave has worked on robotics and machine learning for nearly 20 years. Before founding Neuro, Dave was a principal engineer on Google's self-driving program, now known as Waymo, serving as the machine learning and computer vision team lead. He has been awarded over 100 patents. One of his algorithms is used by NASA's Marge Rovers, and he previously conducted robotics research at Intel. Dave holds an MS and PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon. And with that, huge resume. Let's welcome Dave. Dave, I'm really excited to have you here today, and I've been watching from afar on what you've been building and developing, and I'm just really excited to have you. So welcome. Thank you, Alexa. Awesome, awesome to be here. Really excited to chat today. Dave, let's start with the basics. First things first, in your own words, what is Neuro and what are you building? Yeah, Neuro is a robotics company that that I started with my co-founder Jay-Z back in 2016. And our mission as a company is to better everyday life through robotics. Uh, that sounds pretty broad. And in fact, it is it is pretty broad. We, we're hoping to, to have impact through a number of applications. But the first one that we're working on is autonomous local goods delivery. So delivering groceries, dinner, prescriptions to your home. And, and for us, that means using a custom vehicle that's fully electric, has no space for passengers and, and drives itself. Let's go back a little bit to the beginning. Um, so talk us through standing up a business with this sort of vision. Literally, what were the ingredients that you needed to get it going? And I know you just unveiled your third generation vehicle. So just give us the sense of that journey. For sure. So, so when my co-founder and I started the company, we, we were really convinced that robotics is going to have an enormous impact on all of our lives over the coming decades and, and really has the potential to transform how we live our lives as a society, how we spend our time, how we allocate our resources, how we can create potentially an even more equitable uh, society for everyone. And we created Neuro with the goal of having it play a really key positive role in that transformation. But on day one, we weren't sure exactly what application we should address first. And so we did consider a range of options, everything from automated manufacturing through to home assistant robots. Uh, and we landed on local delivery because it presented really an incredible opportunity uh, where we could have massive societal impact. There was a huge market. And really, there was a technical readiness aspect. We felt like all of the work that we had been doing and others in, in the space, particularly of self-driving, what was at a point where we could really start to scale it and create a commercially viable service using it if we focused on, on goods transportation. 
so a couple of data points that might be interesting to listeners. In the US, every year we take roughly 200 billion personal vehicle trips. You know, we drive around a lot. Uh, and of those, almost half of them are for shopping and running errands. So that's almost 100 billion vehicle trips that we could replace if we had a service that could, uh, to your point, Alexa, go and get things for you and your kids uh, without <laughs> you having to do them yourself. And that's the equivalent of millions of years of time, not to mention all of the knock-on effects in terms of sustainability, um, how, we're, how we're operating as a society and, and so on. And so we really thought that there was a better way and we remain convinced uh, five and a half years on that there is a really better way to do this. And if we're able to build a service that can replace those trips, not only will it make your life easier and you in particular, uh, Alexa, as well, but we also feel like it can strengthen local communities uh, in the process, right? If you look at general commerce today, between 85 and 89% of, of commerce is still local. So as big as Amazon is, and as much as all of us have had things uh, through e-commerce over the last couple of years, the vast, vast majority of commerce is still local. It's us getting into cars. It's us going and interacting with local goods and services. And so we see there being an opportunity to strengthen that local commerce by providing a much, much better service and thereby also strengthening local communities because that local commerce really does form the backbone of a lot of the local community infrastructure that we have. You're at the point where you're now working with huge partners, Kroger's, Domino's, FedEx, 7-Eleven. So this is happening. Give us a sense of what the, the vehicle looks like and what it does exactly. For sure. So we've designed a vehicle that it's a new class of vehicle called zero occupant uh, vehicle. And so it operates on roads. It operates around other, other vehicles, pedestrians, cyclists, you know, it effectively does everything that you would do to drive to the store to get milk for your kids but it does it without having anyone on board. And, and effectively what that means is that we've been able to rethink vehicle design basically from the ground up to, to figure out what would a vehicle look like if you didn't ever need to have people on board. Uh, and instead it was optimized purely for picking up things uh, from local grocers or local retailers and then delivering them to people's homes. And so our vehicle is about, well, we're on our third generation now uh, and they've each gotten slightly larger uh, over time as we've learned more about partners and, and how to best service them. But it's much more narrow than a standard passenger vehicle, right, is one, is one element. Obviously, it has no seats. It has no seat belts. It has no steering wheel. Uh, it has two large compartments. Uh, each of which can hold uh, a significant amount of goods. Our third generation vehicle, the latest one that you mentioned, Alexa, that we just unveiled uh, a few weeks ago, it effectively imagine each one of these two compartments is about the size of a very large trunk. And each one of those compartments can be further configured to be optimized for a specific application. So we could put locker boxes in there. We can have roaming checkout aisle, uh, retail. We can have obviously lots of different packages. We can have multiple dinners uh, separated uh, in each one of those, those compartments. So we've really tried to design the vehicle to be as flexible as possible for all of the myriad of use cases that we see unfolding over time as we build out a really efficient local delivery service. You have major partners that you're actively live with. What are you learning about how to keep changing the vehicle based on what you're finding from these partners? 
Well, when we started out, we built the first generation vehicle. We very uh, creatively dubbed it R1. Uh, we built that within the first year of the company. And, and our goal was really exactly as you say, Alex, our goal was to get out there and learn from partners, from those that were the best in their verticals, that, that knew far more than, frankly, we would ever know about things like groceries and, and whatnot. So we wanted to get a vehicle out there, learn from them, and then use all of those learnings to ensure that as we evolved the vehicle and the overall product that we were offering, we were we were making it better and better and ideally converging to the ideal product proposition. So in particular with that first vehicle, uh, we well we learned we learned a lot of things. We, we learned that the general design of it, where we have these two compartments, they both open curbside. Uh, they're designed to, to sort of minimize how far the doors open outwards so that you can pull up really tight to the curb or double park and whatnot. We found that the general way that we designed that uh, worked really, really well. People loved it. Um, it was really effective. It was the ergonomic effort that we went into to try to make sure that it was really well tailored to, to all users from those that are in a wheelchair to those that are really tall and everything in between uh, really worked out well. A couple of the things that we learned that we modified, which are perhaps the most interesting bits uh, for future generations, is that one, the doors didn't open quite high enough. So we had Cade Metz from the New York Times come and get one of the first commercial deliveries that we did with that first generation platform. And he bumped his head on the door uh, twice. And, and, you know, we said to him, hey, Cade, the first one's on us. The second one is on you. But, but nonetheless, <laughs> we sort of recognize that we probably need to make sure that that is less likely to happen. And so in both our second generation and third generation vehicles, the compartment doors, they open outwards like gull doors. Right, just so that folks that haven't haven't seen uh, the vehicle have have a sense, and so we made them open much higher, to, and that that also has the added benefit of it. It creates an even larger expanse when we open up the compartment, and so it's an even better experience for ingress and egress. So that was one. I think another another pretty major one was the the size of the compartments. So we are convinced that with technology like this and the price point that we think that we can offer as a service over time. We're going to see a drastic change in consumption and our behaviors and how local commerce is performed. And, and with that, we're pretty convinced that that's going to mean smaller order sizes. I, I think the, the sort of massive, let's go to the grocery store once every two weeks for our family of five and, and effectively stockpile enough for winter. You know, we, we think that there's going to be less need for that if you can get things delivered to you basically on demand for either no cost or incredibly low cost. And I think we're gonna to start to see the basket sizes come down as a result. And so you're gonna need less space to carry all of those goods. So that was our thesis uh, as, as we unveiled R1. What we've noticed is that over time, there is still significant value in having compartments that are large enough that you can both batch multiple orders and you have the flexibility to do a whole range of other things like pretty significant package deliveries and, like I said, mobile marketplaces or, or checkout aisles. And so we've increased the size of our compartments. And with that, we've, we've increased the overall vehicle size. And then I think the last probably pretty major changes are we knew we had an opportunity when we were designing these zero occupant vehicles that we can not only rethink the size and shape of the vehicle, but we could also completely rethink our approach to safety, both passive and active safety of these vehicles. Um, and so we've, we've invested a lot as a company in that. Our third generation vehicle has external airbags uh, and it has, an, it has a front crumple zone 
that you know that sounds fairly common. Most vehicles today have crumple zones for for the case of an impact. But I think where it differs is that instead of all of our safety being optimized around trying to protect the occupant, effectively the the cockpit of the vehicle, we flipped that inside out, and we've taken effectively sixty years of of automotive safety innovations, and we've tried to turn them to the outside of the vehicle so that we're trying to mitigate the amount of energy or minimize the amount of energy that's transferred to something that the vehicle might hit as opposed to what's inside the compartment. So in other words, we care a lot more about a parked vehicle that we drive into or uh, you know, any pedestrian, heaven forbid, that we might have uh, a collision with. We care a lot more about that road user than we do about the milk uh, that's inside the compartment. And so all of this has gone into the various iterations and the evolution of the vehicle design. Dave, I think you may have one of the coolest jobs of anybody that I've ever interviewed, um, just because the true creativity that you get to bring to solving this problem. So I'm like, man, I'm like, I wish I could come join the team and and, and think about building this. This is so fun. We are hiring, Alexa. We'll talk afterwards. (laughs) My investors would be super happy about it. One of the things I'd love to talk about, you are literally at the forefront of watching what is possible. Give us a sense of what you think is going to happen in 10 years. So just fast forward, I'm a mom in 10 years. What are the things that are going to happen because of neuro? So because of neuro specifically, we're, we're hoping that that we're able to build and, and contribute. You know, I, I think we want to remain pretty realistic about the role that we'll play. We, we see a tremendous opportunity for us as a company to help build out this autonomous local delivery platform. Uh, we're not going to be the only ones. There are a lot of amazing folks in this space, which, which is incredible and I think is really good. I think collectively what we're going to see is really a transformation in how we perform local commerce. Uh, and, you know, commerce is not necessarily the, the sexiest word or, or an area that people tend to pay a ton of attention to in terms of the latest and greatest innovations, but it is going to be pretty remarkable what an impact that will have on our lives. So we've talked already about how many trips people spend going and getting things. Uh, that also turns into an enormous amount of time that people are spending running errands and, and really, our dream as a company is to build robotics technology that will improve people's lives. And a large part of that is often giving them back more time, right? You having an extra hour in your day, and that's an hour on top, right? So hopefully that can be the best ROI hour that you have, like for leisure with your family, for reading books to your kids, for, for doing exactly what you want to be doing, where this is going to go and, and how that's going to be shaped by local commerce is that we're, we're pretty convinced that today the model that we have is it's not sustainable and it doesn't make a ton of sense and i think it's one of these things it's sort of similar to general driving where we look at it across the board and you can say well people have cars and cars are convenient and and this seems like it's in a pretty good place and then when you talk about the the death toll that we have on roads in the us and nitsa was just talking about their numbers for last year and it looks like it's going to be the worst year ever with over forty thousand deaths on roads Largely as a society, we just sort of accept that as part of the price that you pay for the convenience of driving and and the the critical role that it plays in all of our lives. I think we can do so much better. And I think the same thing is true on the local commerce side. I mentioned stockpiling goods, right? The the way that we we do this today where we're driving in the most popular vehicle, the Ford F-150 in the US, we're driving pickup trucks to the grocery store to get milk. It just doesn't make much sense. And and when we replace that, we can suddenly do it in a way that you're going to get more time back in your day. It's going to be a lot more sustainable. I think that your consumption, and this is where I get very excited about it, I think your personal consumption can 
decrease pretty significantly as a result. And that may sound a little counterintuitive. You're like, well, you're probably going to have more trips going around. Doesn't doesn't this uh, worsen your impact in, in terms of consumption sustainability? But right now we have an enormous amount of waste, right? If, if you think about what's in your pantry right now, what's in your kitchen, you're effectively stockpiling and it, it varies to a degree based on, on who you're talking about, but you're stockpiling an enormous amount of stuff that you don't need today. You don't even need this week, but because you want it, available when you need it, you have all of this extra stuff that you don't need. Imagine a model of consumption where you don't have pantries in your kitchen or you have a very, very minimal uh, one because you know that you have confidence that whatever you want today, you can get when you need it uh, very, very efficiently, perhaps for free to you. And so you can have the, the freshest food there. You can get exactly what you need when you need it. And you don't need to be creating a, a stockpile for winter. And so that's where I see a lot of potential. And, and, and I think as you expand that further, it also changes how we package things, right? You don't need to have triple package stuff because when it gets sent, it needs to be able to make it across the country uh, and, and protect the goods that are, that are within the packaging while it's doing so. Instead, we can get rid of a lot of that packaging. Uh, and, and I think all of these combined are going to lead to a, a, I hope a really amazing new relationship with consumption and one that is going, you're not going to have to really have any trade-offs. I think it's going to be a better experience for the end consumer. You're going to have more convenience. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a really amazing future uh, if and when we can collectively pull this off. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Cardin knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Can you give me a sense of what you envision or imagine around on-the-go deliveries, literally stores in motion? What's possible there? This is one that, that we've thought a fair bit about. It's very, very early. But I think that if you look at the range of use cases that folks have today uh, in terms of, again, how you interact with, with your local businesses, there's your weekly grocery shop, uh, which uh, we've sort of talked about how we see evolving. There's also the convenience store runs. And often that is, hey, you need something in particular, something specific, and you go in and, and while you're there, you might pick up a few other things that, that you didn't realize you needed uh, on the way. And then there's the more general, just, hey, I'd like a snack or I'd really love a coffee or, um, you know, I, I'm less, I'm less, I'm less concerned about exactly what it is that I get, but I would like to be able to get some form of, of product quickly. And, and I think the latter category is where we see the potential for things like mobile marketplaces. And I think why they're particularly interesting, because it may sound initially pretty inefficient to be driving stores around uh, instead of you, you going to the store yourself. But where I think that they could play a pretty strong role is we're going to have, and we already do today to a large extent, we're going to have a very high frequency of deliveries that are coming to your home, right? You're already getting packages probably every day or every other day. Hourly. 
Yeah, right. So as as we increase the opportunities and the flexibility of what we're able to offer, we think that's only going to increase. And that presents a number of opportunities. And I'd say the mobile marketplace is one of those. So if we're delivering you dinner, Alexa, then alongside that dinner, we could have one compartment of the vehicle also have effectively a checkout lane, a checkout aisle, or convenience items, or even medications and whatnot, uh, so that when you get the very specific delivery that's exactly what you want, there's also an opportunity to grab some of these other items that, that might also be useful to you, although they may not have crossed the threshold for you wanting a store to come independently. And so that's that's one opportunity. Another one we see is really, from a convenience perspective, we're really excited about being able to provide on-demand delivery to you that can get exactly what you want to you as quickly as possible. But that's never going to be as fast as a vehicle that may already be in your neighborhood uh, that's a couple blocks away. And you say, hey, you know what? I, I need some toiletries or I need some nappies or something for my kids. Uh, what's What can I get in like five minutes? I've got a, a nappy emergency at home, uh, which obviously all of us have had that have had kids. Uh, and then that vehicle can be there within a matter of maybe five minutes. It, it sort of changes, it changes the SLA from a, we're going to get a store to pack something for you. And then we're going to have a vehicle waiting and, and have that immediately come to you. It changes it from that, which is more like 15 to 30 minutes to an Uber style timing, which is, hey, we have a few vehicles in the neighborhood. We have a convenience vehicle, we have a, a fresh fruit and veg, maybe we have a, a coffee and pastries and we have a toiletries and uh, emergency needs uh, vehicle in your neighborhood. And so when you request it, that vehicle comes immediately and it might be a matter of a couple minutes. I want you to talk about how you think about reimagining roads, right? You know, I, I, I live in New York City, there's roads, there's sidewalks. Fundamentally, what you're rethinking is things in motion, right? Between people and bikes and cars and, and delivery vehicles. What do you think happens to the roads, if you were to guess? I mean, infrastructure is incredibly challenging. It's very, very slow. It's difficult to move the needle there when you're dealing with existing infrastructure, for sure. But I do think, again, if, if we sort of take a step back and look critically at how we interact with our infrastructure, how we use it, and the role that it plays in our lives. I think particularly in the US, we have we have designed entire neighborhoods and thereby how we live around cars, right? So we have cars and then we create roads and we have garages and, and everything is designed so that everything is, is sort of optimized around these vehicles. Uh, because I do think that's where a lot of the, the problem comes from. I sort of mentioned, hey, you've got Parking, well, that's because you need a car, which means that you have to have a garage for your car and you have to be able to get your car in and out of that garage. And all of these things derive from this original assumption on everyone needs a car to live their life. And if you can remove that, then all of a sudden you can get rid of garages and you can get rid of the driveways. And then you can get rid of this requirement that every house has to have access to it from a vehicle. And suddenly I think you can open up a pretty amazing possible way of living. And I think that that's also what we're going to see in some of these new futuristic cities and areas that, that are popping up. I know Mark Laurie is, is working on one. Uh, and, and I think it's going to be pretty remarkable. You know, I think New York City is, has been a pretty good example of this, you know, as crazy as it is uh, in terms of the amount of things that you need to be getting to people in, in and out of New York City. I, I think that all of the pushes that we've seen from that city towards increased pedestrian zones, restrictions on Central Park, vehicles, whatnot, like they've all shown, I think, incredibly positive outcomes and, and really 
uh, given us a sense of what the value is uh, of every move that we take towards livability uh, and, and away from sort of the old school car dominance uh, as part of the psyche. So self-driving cars, all of these vehicles delivering goods, how fast over the next five years, 10 years, like when will we begin to see more and more that give us a sense of the real adoption that is possible here to the point where it's improving the majority of Americans' lives? Yeah, I mean, it's the trillion dollar, maybe $10 trillion question. Uh, <laughs> I think, that's it. I think that, that, that amount keeps going up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, which which I think is good. I, I think we're recognizing that the impact that this will have. I, I think it's always been a tough, uh, a tough thing to predict in terms of, of the timing. And, and I think partly that's because it, it sort of means different things when you ask, like, when will this be here? It's a difficult technical task and it's easier in some places than others, right? So typically what we're seeing is that those that are really focused on trying to get this out into the world and, and making an impact as quickly as possible are trying to figure out what's the fastest path to do that. And that tends to be certain areas that are less complicated. You know, there's going to be less people that are jumping in front of the car in a place like Arizona than New York City. Uh, the weather is also a big one, right? It's harder driving in a in a blizzard conditions in Boston uh, than it is driving in South Bay in in, uh, in California, for instance. And so I think we're, we're going to continue to see real progress in terms of deployment, but it's going to take some time for this to get everywhere. I do think that to, to your question around timing, I think in the next five years, we're going to see some incredible things. I think we're going to see a lot of people uh, being able to have access to this technology. We're going to see it in a lot of places. Uh, I don't think in five years it's going to be all over Manhattan, uh, right, self-driving in general. But I do think that in five years it's going to be very, very clear to everyone just what the potential is of this technology. And it's going to be having a, a real impact on a lot of people's lives in the U.S. One of the things that I said in the intro was that literally one of your algorithms is being used by NASA's Mars rovers. <laughs> And you truly, you know, PhDs in robotics from Carnegie Mellon, your, your Disney world of robotics. Give us a sense of what really early attracted you to robotics and what has made you decide to marry it for, you know, probably the rest of your career here. Um, what is it about it? Yeah, so one of the things that I've learned in both academia, where I spent, you know, a bunch of time during my PhD and after, and then also in industry is that really the biggest breakthroughs are often made at the intersection of different areas. It's really this cross-pollination of ideas that, that you get and you bring them together and suddenly you that's where a lot of the magic happens. And to me, this is really what makes robotics so fun. It combines so many disciplines together. You know, you have sort of, there's math and physics and there's huge underpinnings there, but then you also have all of the hardware side, the software side. Uh, there's human factors. There's you know a lot of the artificial intelligence that we're building in machine learning, and and in the end you end up with these crazy amazing robots uh, that that look like they're out of Star Wars, uh, but they're they're bringing you groceries and giving you time to read to your kids. You know it, it really is that this pretty amazing combination of of so many interesting areas that that come together in a way that is both incredibly inspiring and and really exciting, uh, but but also has the opportunity to impact in a very real way. I'm going to move to a quick fire round. I'm going to ask just really quick questions. You tell me first thing that comes to your mind. What's a favorite book that you've read that you come back to? I'd say the best book on startups is still The Hard Thing About Hard Things. 
I, I just feel like anyone that is uh, aspiring to, to start a company should read that and, and really try to feel it uh, because I, I think that what, what Ben talks about in that is, is just, it's so true to the startup experience. I, I'm sure you agree, Alexa. Um, There's no you know, silver it, it, bullets. You need lots of lead bullets. And you're like, yep. Yep. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be incredibly hard, no matter how sort of externally successful uh, your startup seems to be or is. Uh, it's going to be an incredibly tough journey. And I think making sure that you steel yourself to that is really, really important. I want to hear your biggest pinch me moment today at Neuro, a, a day where you walked home and literally said to your family, I can't believe that just happened. What was it? You know, I would say one that was surprisingly emotional for me was seeing our third generation vehicle. Uh, you know, it's, it's the third one that we've built. So you, you might imagine, well, you're probably kind of bored of it by now. But the fact that this is the first one that we are confident that we're going to be able to scale and that this is what the future of the company and we hope the future of local commerce will look like seeing that vehicle in person and, and getting to touch it and, and hug it uh, <laughs> uh, was, was incredible. And it really did feel like a glimpse into the future. And I was just so incredibly proud and thankful uh, for the team and all of our partners and everyone that had put so much. And it, it's clear. I mean, it was very clear to us. Hopefully, you know, hopefully it's clear to folks that see it uh, outside the team, but it was just so clear how much love uh, had gone into to that vehicle. It, it, it just, it gave me chills. What's your favorite question to ask somebody when you're interviewing them for neuro? You know, I love getting a sense of what makes people tick. Uh, and so for neuro in particular, we've always tried to be really thoughtful about hiring people. You know, it's the classic missionaries, not mercenaries. We know what we're doing is going to be incredibly hard. And so we we really need to make sure that we have folks that care about the mission and are really passionate about the impact that we might have. And so I, I think that, you know, that that's just a general sentiment that I try to get out of folks, not necessarily one question, but but if boiled down to one question, it would it would sort of be, why neuro? Like why why is this interesting? Why is this interesting to you? And why do you want this to be part of your legacy? You know, we would love Jay-Z, my co-founder, often says to folks, we we want, we want Neuro to be a place where the vast majority of our team feels like this is where they did the best work of their career. And I think the only way you get that is if people are incredibly excited about the mission and care about it uh, far, far more than just, oh, this is a role that I could have and this is a paycheck that, that I could get and you know maybe this company will be successful. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. This truly was one of my absolute favorite podcasts that I've had. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more and check out uh, Neuro's vehicles, head to neuro.ai and you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Thank you, Alexa. It's been fun. (laughs) 